turn over to the 16th chapter of Matthew. I don't know if you watch much TV or not or in the game shows or not, but once in a while it's kind of fun to watch some of those game shows and it seems like whether it's the $64,000 question or are you smarter than a, what is it, third grader or fifth grader or whatever, um, who wants to be a millionaire, all those game shows, there's a common thread that runs between them. They're all asking questions. And you have contestants that go on those game shows hoping to answer the question correctly so that they could receive a certain monetary amount for their right answers. Well, today Jesus asks what I like to call the ultimate question. He asks a question above all other questions. And we want to look at that this morning in our text in Matthew chapter 16. And there's not a monetary payoff necessarily when you answer Jesus' question correctly, but there is far more, a far more important and rewarding payoff when you answer this question correctly, and that is the destiny of your own soul for all of eternity. And so look at Matthew chapter 16, and follow along in your Bibles as I begin reading in verse 13. It says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And when he commanded his disciples that they, then he commanded his disciples that they should not tell anyone that he was Jesus the Christ. This text focuses around verse 15 when he says to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? That's a key question. That's an ultimate question. You get that question right, you're going to get a lot more than a big bank account. You're going to have all of eternity to spend with your God and Creator. You're going to have the forgiveness of sin. You're going to have the Spirit of God to dwell in you, to give you the power that you need to live a life that is worthy of the calling of Christ. All those things are available. The grace and love and mercy of God, all those things are available if you answer this question correctly. However, if you answer it not correctly, there is a dear, dear price 
to pay. Jesus Christ is the heart of Christianity. You might be sitting there saying, duh, tell me something I don't know. But I think we forget that. We forget that Christianity is Christ. That without Christ, there would be no Christianity. Without Christ, we wouldn't be here this morning. And so when we come to this text, it's a very pivotal text in relationship to the Gospel of Matthew. Because everything, everything, beloved, hinges on that question. Who do you say that I am? The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. And then it says in verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Do you know that up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has never asked this question of his disciples? Not once. This is the first time he's actually turned to them and said, Who do you say that I am? And so this is really an apex, it's a climax in this gospel. And how you answer this question depends on whether you get an A plus or you get an F. He spent time with his disciples, probably two and a half years. And here he asks the ultimate question. And this is a question not just for his disciples, Please don't miss it. If you're here this morning and you're saying, well, I'm not one of his disciples, so I don't need to be bothered with this question. No, you will answer this question one day. You will answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus Christ? Because every being on the face of the earth one day must ask, answer that question before the Lord. And on that answer will hinge your eternal destiny. For two plus years, Jesus has been teaching, he's been discipling, he's been affirming and establishing his disciples. And Peter, here on behalf of the group of disciples, comes up with the answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's an incredible moment in the ministry of our Lord and the life of his disciples. Let's not forget as far as introduction to where we're at. We don't want to forget where we're at geographically or socially and and what's been going on in the, the ministry of Christ. For weeks, maybe months, Jesus has sought to be secluded from the crowds. We've been talking about that in the past several weeks. He sought to get away from all the busyness of all the Jewish religious leaders and them constantly attacking him and try to embarrass him and put him on the spot in front of the crowds of people that gathered around. He sought seclusion from the negative pressure that existed. All the, the people, thousands and thousands of people constantly pressing up against him, asking for a healing, asking for food, asking for another meal that was miraculously given to them. He's looking for 
seclusion away from the multitudes of people that were just following him for a free lunch or a free breakfast or whatever it might be. He's looking for seclusion away from Herod, who basically is a political leader and is ticked off and he wants to kill Jesus. He already took away and killed John the Baptist. He's looking to get away from all that hatred, all that animosity of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were constantly trying to trap him, trick him, because they were threatened by what he said and what he did. It threatened their religious establishment. But he also, on the positive side, that's what he was trying to get away from. But on the positive side, he was trying to get to a point in time with his disciples that he could spend some good quality time with them. See, whenever he was with his disciples, there's all these people all around, all the time. And he realized that his time on earth was running out. He has less than a year before he dies on the cross, beloved. And he's got 12 guys that he's spending time with, but he's really not because he's, he's so busy doing all this stuff. And so he's looking for a place of seclusion that he could spend some good quality time with his disciples. And he's been spending a lot of his time recently in Gentile areas. Not in the Jewish area, but in the Gentile areas. And we've been seeing that in the past several weeks. And as we approach this text, we find him withdrawing even further away to even a more obscure place in order that he could somehow focus most of what he wants to do with his disciples on their needs and the lessons for them. I mean, they're the ones that are going to carry this thing on after he's gone. And so he needs to make sure that they have a good grasp of who he is. And so let's look at verse 13 and see the setting for what we have before us here. It says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. When you hear the words Caesarea, who do you think of? Caesar. All right? Well, that's exactly what they would do. They would establish these towns, these cities, these regions, and the ruler would be named after them. And so you see the word Caesarea, you immediately jump to Caesar. Well, there's another Caesarea down the coast, off the coast of, uh, by the city of Jerusalem there. Well, that's not this. This is Caesarea Philippi. It's a different one. This place is called Caesarea Philippi because it basically was established in honor of Caesar. And it was a place where Philip the Tetrarch ruled and reigned, so he came in, and he was a, not like the other guy, uh, Herod, but he was a little more lenient with things. And so he took this city, and he kind of established it and built it up. And so he called it Caesarea Philippi, after himself. And this place, to give you a little background on this place, it's the northernmost point, basically, where Jesus has gone. If you look at the map here, it's a map. Caesarea Philippi is all the way on the upper right-hand corner there. And you say, wow, how far? That's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So you can see that Jesus is trying to get away. He's trying to get away from it all. When you look at the land of Israel, 
you hear sometimes in Scripture all the way from Dan to Beersheba. Well, Dan is the highest point in Israel. And this place is a little to the uh, east of Dan. And so Beersheba is all the way to the south. And so we're dealing with a land that's kind of away from the the dry, arid land around the Sea of Galilee. It's up in a plateau, about 1,700 feet up above sea level. And so it's kind of a cool place. It's It's a great place for Jesus to have this retreat with his disciples. You can see Mount Hermon off in the distance. But you have to understand, this is pretty much a Gentile area. And what we're going to see is, it was, the ancient city was called Peneus. And it was named after a Greek god called Pan. And I have some pictures here for you. This is an artist's rendering of what they think this area looked like when it was the sanctuary of the Greek god Pan. Go to the next picture. These are from our trip to Israel. You can see it's just like, doesn't it look like a great retreat place? I mean, you got running water. You just got the, you know, the, the cool trees there. Go to the next picture. These are some of the ruins that are left from all their idols and their, the, the temple worship that they used to do. Go to the next one. And you can see it up on the hill there. There's little like sconces cut out of the, the stone, and that's where the, the temple was, obviously. Go to the next one. And you can think for a second, this is actually where Jesus was. Isn't that amazing? That you can go over there today and actually be where Jesus was. Go to the next slide. And so they used all this to basically, is that the last one? I think. Or is there another one? Yeah. So that kind of gives you the setting of where we're at. And this town of Peneus was occupied predominantly by Gentiles, not Jews. And it was... Interesting that Jesus took his disciples, it's kind of like, you know, us going on an elder retreat down to the, uh, what's a bad district in San Francisco? I don't know. The Tenderloin, okay? You'd be going, what are you doing? (laughs) You know, that wouldn't be good. Well, it's kind of like what Jesus is doing. He's taking his disciples away to this place, and it's just a totally pagan place. And he wants to get away, and that's how bad they want to, get up there and get away. But it's important to understand that this is a Gentile area. Mark tells us, the same gospel account tells us that they were probably walking along some of the roads in between the different villages on this time. And and Luke tells us that he came out of a prayer meeting. The Lord came out of a prayer meeting with his father before this, when he's up there in that area. And so he takes his disciples And we see here the Q&A that he has with his disciples, beginning in verse 13. He asks his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, this is the first question that Christ asks his disciples. Remember, he's getting away with them. He wants to teach them some lessons. So he's not asking this question because he doesn't know, right? Do you ever notice that about Jesus? He's always asking questions, but he already knows the answer. I mean, he's God. So he's asking them this question, you might call it a leading question even, because he wants to get their, their input. 
And the first question is asked of his disciples, and what he says is, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? He's after the popular view. He wants to know what people are talking about out there. Not that he doesn't know. He wants to hear it from his disciples' lips. That phrase there, the Son of Man, is interesting. It's used over 90 plus times to refer to Christ. He refers to himself. It's a prophetic title taken from the book of Daniel in chapter 7, 13, 14. But he uses it as a sign of his humiliation, of his humanity, the Son of Man. He wants to make a clear statement here. And he wants to contrast the answers. Well, look at how they answer him in verse 14. So they said, well, some say John the Baptist, the first answer. Notice they didn't say, oh, Jesus, they're out there calling you Beelzebub and Satan and everything. See, they knew that he wasn't after the negativity that existed. He was after the people that truly were looking, that were truly maybe following him at a distance saying, boy, who is he? They were curious. They've seen all the ministry that he's done, the miraculous feedings and the miraculous healings and everything that's gone on up to this point. So he says, what are these people who are kind of following us saying about me? I mean, that's what they said about him in Chapter 10, verse 25, they called him the prince of demons. But he wasn't looking for that kind of response. So they say, well, some think you're John the Baptist. It's an honest answer. It's actually a pretty good answer. And, you know, we sit here today because we got the whole Bible and we're looking back on this and we're thinking, why would people think that? Well, see, we have all the information. They didn't have all the information. They didn't live in a a dime when, you know, something happens over in Afghanistan. Uh, Now we hear about it on the 5 o'clock news. They didn't live in that day and age of technology and information just overload. And so you remember that some of the disciples of John the Baptist even asked Christ, John wants to know who you are when he was in prison. And so there was some speculation out there, but after Herod killed John the Baptist, he heard of Christ out there doing these miraculous signs. And so this rumor kind of got started that Christ was John the Baptist come back from the dead. And in each one of these answers, there's two things that are similar. First of all, they're a prophet. They're a predecessor of the Messiah in the Jewish mind. And they're also somebody who's supernatural, somebody who's come back from the dead or or come back, been resurrected somehow. You see that in each of their answers. But the first one is John the Baptist. And he said to his servants, Herod the Tetrarch said, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead and therefore mighty works to show. That's what he does, all these miraculous works. See, they they weren't disputing what Christ did. 
They weren't disputing the miraculous signs and wonders that he did. They never disputed that. Do you understand that? They accepted that. They saw it with their own eyes. It wasn't a shell game. This stuff really happened. And so when it happened, they began to realize, even the people who weren't following Christ said, man, this is something supernatural. That's why those that rejected Christ, the only other supernatural being in the world other than God is who? Satan. So they said, well, we can't say that he's God. So you know what? He's Satan. He does it by the power of Satan. So the answer of John the Baptist is is not a far-fetched answer for somebody who's just following at a distance and seeing that's what they expected. Well, secondly, he says, some say you're Elijah. That's taken out of Malachi 4.5. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah before the great and terrible, terrible day of the Lord comes. See, the Jews believed that Elijah would come back from heaven before the Messiah came. He would come back from heaven prior to the coming of the Messiah. And so some said, well, this some are saying that you're Elijah. And it's based on the same thinking. He's a forerunner of the Messiah. And secondly, he has to come back from the dead or come back from heaven in his, in his, his situation. But you remember Elijah. Elijah was a great prophet. I mean, he did miraculous things in the Old Testament. Even today, when you have a Passover feast, they'll leave an empty chair, and the empty chair is for who? It's for Elijah. It's for, that's what they expect. They expect him to come back and fill that chair one day. Because ultimately, in the Jewish mind, the Messiah is going to come. And before the Messiah comes, Elijah has to come back. It's based on Malachi 4. And then he says, well, and others even say Jeremiah. This was interesting as I studied this out because you say, yeah, it just seems like a hodgepodge of answers. No, it wasn't. John the Baptist, because Herod the Tetrarch was saying that he, he may be John the Baptist come back from dead. Uh, Elijah, because of, of just all the works that Elijah did, and he was a prophet, and he, he would come back. And, and then Jeremiah, well, where did they get this? Well, in the, the Apocrypha, which is included in the Catholic Bible, it's not in our Bible, it's not biblical writings. They're not books that would be included in our canon of Scripture. But there's a book called 1st, 2nd, 3rd Maccabees. And it's named after Judas Maccabeus, who was a great leader during that period of time. Remember, there was about a 400-year period of time between the last prophet and, like, John the Baptist. So they, they had a lot of years going on here without anything. And all of a sudden, these two guys show up, John the Baptist and then Christ. So they're a little confused. They're a little shaken at this point. Well... During that period of time, and in that book is, recording, is recorded, it basically says that Jeremiah, prior to the Babylonian captivity in, in 586 B.C., that he came and he took the covenant and he took the, the Ark of the Covenant and he took the altar of incense out of the temple because the Gentiles were going to come and desecrate it. And so the legend, this is not biblical history, this is extra-biblical history. Legends. This is what the Jewish mind thought. 
They believe that Jeremiah the prophet went in and he took the Ark of the Covenant and he took the altar of incense and he hid it in a cave in Mount Nebo. So the Gentiles wouldn't desecrate it. And so the Jews held on to this legend. And before the Messiah comes back to establish his kingdom, the Jews believe that Jeremiah is going to come back and go back to Mount Nebo and say, oh, here's the Ark, here's the altar of incense, and put him back in the temple and everything's going to be happy. That's what they believe. It's a fairy tale, but that's what they believe. And so, all of a sudden, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, if you know anything about Jeremiah, you know that he was a prophet of God, and what they do, they ended up throwing him in a pit. He wasn't, he wasn't looked up to. They didn't appreciate his prophecies. But here, in this legend, he becomes the hero. And so they believed that the prophet Jeremiah was going to come back before the Messiah, so that name fits in there fine, according to their tradition, according to their extra-biblical writings. And then it also says there, it says in Luke 9.19, others, um, and then it says that one of the prophets of old has risen. Here it just says uh, one of the other prophets. So there was a lot of speculation on who Christ was. And once again, two factors line up with these names. One is they're looking for a forerunner of the Messiah. Secondly, it was somebody that had to come back from the grave or come back supernaturally because that's the only way they could explain how Christ did his miraculous works. John MacArthur says that maybe some of the followers saw in him the character and quality of John the Baptist. Maybe some of them found in him the fire and the intensity and the fervency of Elijah. Or maybe some saw the lamenting grief and brokenheartedness that we find in the prophet Jeremiah. Whatever the reason, these are who people thought the Messiah was. These are opinions. But it's interesting that all those answers are wrong. Because Jesus is far more than simply a prophet. They may be close in their mind to getting it right, but they're wrong. When you're playing golf, it doesn't matter how close you get to the hole. It matters whether you can put the ball in the hole. Right? I mean, that's how you win. If you never put the ball in the hole, you will never win. doesn't matter how close you get to the goal line with the football. What do you have to do? You have to cross the plane of the goal line. doesn't matter how far the ball goes out to center field and bounces on the top of the fence. So close to hitting a home run they were. But it wasn't close enough. Same thing here. See, all those answers in their mind were close about who Christ was. And you know what? Even in our modern day world, we see the same thing. When asked who Christ is, Napoleon said, I know men and Jesus Christ is no mere man. That's a pretty good answer. It's close. 
Pilate said, he's a man without fault. In other words, this is a perfect man we're looking at, folks. This was, these are from unbelievers. Their assessment of who Christ is. Diderot said that he is unsurpassed. Martineau said that he's the divine flower of humanity. Renan, the French atheist, said this, he is the greatest among the sons of men. Even in our modern American culture, what do we call Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ, superstar. Close, (laughs) but not enough. Not enough. Nice statements about Christ, nice sentiments, you might say, but they're not sufficient to identify Jesus the Christ properly. And you know why? Because there's no human category in which you can put Christ. There's no human category because he's not human. Well, look at verse 15 because he jumps on to a second question. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Notice the emphatic pronoun there. Who do you say that I am? This draws out the personal view of Jesus. You know what the popular view is. Well, maybe he's one of the prophets. Maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's Elijah. Oh, he's a great man. Oh, he was a great teacher. You hear that all the time. Close, but doesn't cut it. And so Christ brings it to a personal level. He looks right at his disciples and he says, you know what, I want to hear it from you. What do you say about me? This is the ultimate question that must be answered in life. And beloved, you will answer that question one day. You will. Matter of fact, you're answering that question right now, this very moment, and your eternal destiny depends on the answer that you give. This isn't a game. This isn't make-believe. All you have to do is walk outside and look around. And you look at the creation in which we find ourselves. You look at the human body. Just the eye alone, the incredible makeup of an eyeball and how it works and the nerves and the sensors and everything. Amazing. And you're going to tell me that that came from a bucket of sludge? Come on. You're not that stupid. You're not that naive. That would be like me coming to you and saying, look at this nice watch I bought. Wow, that's where'd you get that? Well, you know what? The weirdest thing. I went out in my garage, and I was cleaning out my garage, and there was a box, and it had all these springs and screws and little tiny things and glass, and and it was just in this box. Okay, where'd you get the watch? Well, that's what I'm going to tell you. I went out the next day, and I opened the box, and everything was just perfectly put together, and this is this watch. 
you would say, I am out of my mind. There's no way that could ever happen. If there's a watch, there has to be a what? A watchmaker. Very clear. Common sense. When you look at creation, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out there must be a creator. One day, this question will be answered. Who do you say that I am? You can't avoid it. You really can't. You're pinned against the wall of eternity, and you're going to be forced to answer this question one day. I pray that the question will be asked, answered before it's too late. Because we're living in a period of time now. Now is the time to answer this question. Who do you say I am? Christ asked you. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Look at the confession here in verse 16. Simon Peter answered. Simon Peter's always the spokesman. You notice that? He's always the spokesman for the disciples. And this isn't just Simon Peter's answering this question. You have to understand that. It's not real clear in our English Bibles. But this isn't just Peter answering the question. Jesus didn't walk over to the 12 disciples and say, Oh, Peter, come here, I have a question for you. And take him over in the corner. Who do you say I am? That's not what he did. He turned to the whole group and he said, Who do you say that I am? And they probably talked amongst themselves, to be honest with you. They probably had some consensus. They probably had some dialogue. And Peter, because he's the spokesman, he makes that statement, Thou art the Christ. Well, he didn't say thou, first of all. Okay, that's not a Jewish term. And he didn't even say Christ. Because that's a Gentile term. You're you're talking about Jews here. What would he say? He would look at Jesus, and Peter would have said, you are the Messiah. That's exactly what he would have said. You're the anointed one. You're the promised Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for, Jesus. You're the, the one that the prophets foretold about, the eternal king, the eternal savior, the eternal high priest. You know, there's over 300 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus himself has fulfilled in his death, burial, life, and resurrection. Over 300. Stop and think about that. These are not coincidences. This isn't a shell game. There isn't somebody pulling the cords, the strings, you know. These aren't little puppets. That is an amazing fact. So you say, okay, well, big deal. I mean, there's disciples. Shouldn't they say that? I mean, what else would they say? Well, they kind of had it right sometimes, and they kind of had it wrong sometimes, if you remember. You go all the way back to John chapter 1, when they first meet Jesus. The first day they meet Jesus, what does Andrew do? He runs to get Peter. Do you remember? And his words to Peter were, Peter, we found the Messiah. Remember that? I mean, it sounds pretty affirming, doesn't it? It 
sounds pretty much they got this thing nailed down. If they knew that in the beginning, why did he spend two and a half years trying to convince them of this? Because at one point, they thought they had it figured out. And then at another point, they're believing the testimony of John the Baptist, who says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The testimony of John the Baptist, who said, I saw and bore witness that this is the Son of God in John chapter 1. They heard all that. But don't forget, in Matthew chapter 11, we looked at this when we were in that chapter, John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus And what do they ask Jesus? They ask him this question. Are you the Messiah or should we be looking for somebody else? (laughs) Remember that? Even John the Baptist had some doubts of who he was. And the reason being is because they had a certain mindset of what the Messiah was going to do. He was going to come back to earth physically, set up his dominion here on earth, and overthrow the Roman government, get rid of all that burden, and, and deal with everything. They didn't know about the church age. They didn't know that there was going to be this this period of time where the church was left here on this earth. They didn't understand that. And so they may have been a little confused. In John chapter 6, verse 69, Peter says, We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. See, there's, there's kind of scattered throughout their time with Christ these little vignettes of this super faith. You see it over and over again. There are moments of great faith that the disciples expressed. But then we saw one just a couple of weeks ago where he turns to him and what's he say? You have little faith. They're going back and forth. I mean, isn't it an incredible thing that with all the evidence, with all the information that they had, all the first-hand sightings, what Christ did, they were still kind of struggling. I mean, it's wonderful to have the Holy Spirit in us who keeps telling us that we belong to God. In Romans 8, it tells us that it keeps on crying out within us, Abba, Father, that we can be secure in our faith. See, they were strong in their faith at one point and weak in their faith at another, just like us. And so the Lord had to spend time with them. But it comes to this point. Everything leads up to this point, this question that's being asked of them and their answer. And now they really believe that this is the Messiah. This is the Son of the living God. They've seen all the miracles. They've heard the teaching. And they're convinced. Even as he gets ready for the cross, they begin to waffle a little bit. Think about in John chapter 14 where the Lord tells his disciples, that he's going to die and that he's going to have to leave them and he's going away. And what do they do? They end up getting nervous and they begin to question him. And Philip says, you know what? We're not too sure about this. We're not too sure who you are. 
And he has to say to them, have I been with you so long and you don't know who I am? But I think at this point, the affirmation of their faith is this supreme confession that you are the Messiah. And that's what they're holding on to. The Spirit of God put that in their heart. And he turned them into, from a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and everything else, into a group of men that literally turned the world upside down for Christ. It took all this time. I mean, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew a long time. It took all this time to get to this point. You're the Messiah, he says. You're the one who's going to fulfill all our hope. You're the source of our salvation. You've been sent from heaven. You're the long-awaited king. You're the desire of the nations. You're the one of whom the prophets spoke. You're the one of whom sacrifice of the Old Testament, all the sacrifices, they're pointed to you. You're the one that the psalmist sang about. And all those pictures, all those symbols, all those types in the Old Testament. They're all about you, Jesus, because you're the one, you're the Messiah. They got the question right. He is the one. But they couldn't stop there. Peter didn't stop there. He said, oh, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And then he says this, the Son of the living God. Notice he doesn't say the son of man. That's how Jesus referred to himself. But he says, no, you're the son of not a dead God, beloved, (laughs) but a living God. And remember the culture that they're in. They're in that little, by that water, in that little place where all the temple worship's going on. And what he's doing for them, he's drawing a picture through their answer. The son of the living God, as opposed to the God of Pan, who's obviously dead. All these people that are worshiping, all these false idols, all for naught, because their God is not living. So not only God, but he says, living God. You are the Son, the Son of God, of the living God. And when Jesus is called the Son of God, it's basically like you're saying he is one with God. That's what you're saying. Son means equal with. They believed that this was the Messiah. Some people say, well, didn't Philip ask him to see the Father? Show us the Father. Remember that? But, I mean, he didn't understand the Trinity. I mean, we don't even understand the Trinity today. But he clearly understood that Christ was God. In John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, remember when Jesus basically made himself equal with God, what did the Jews want to do? They wanted to stone him. They wanted to kill him. They thought it was blasphemous. Even his enemies knew what he was saying. His claim to be the Messiah, the Savior, is a very real claim. 
It's a reality. And when he asks you that question, who do you say that I am? What is your answer? Good teacher? Some religious guy? Biblical character? All those things may be right. But until your lips and your life are willing to say, no, I, I understand that he is the Messiah. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. Basic answer, but it's right on target. Well, look at verse 17 because it gives us the source of this confession. Where did this come from? Did they just get their brains together and figure it out on their own? as some people try to do today with religion? Well, verse 17 says, Jesus answered and he said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That means son of John. Calls him by his human name. He says, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He speaks of the source of this divine revelation of who Christ is. What he's trying to explain to Peter, Simon, he's saying, you know what, pal, you didn't figure this out on your own. It wasn't your superior intellect, Peter, that got you this right answer. It's not your merit. It's not even your calculation. You guys may think you are making some big analysis here. No, it wasn't your intuition. It's not your religious tradition. Matter of fact, there's nothing in the human realm that could reveal this to somebody. Nothing. I don't know about you, but as a Christian, as I go out and I share my faith, that's an encouragement to me. You say, well, how so? See, sometimes with evangelism, we get everything backwards. We think somehow it's our, our God-given calling to go out and save the world. And we get mixed up. Do you know that that's not what God has called you to do? You couldn't save the world if you tried the rest of your life. There'd be no way you could save the world. But that's sometimes what we think. We think that somehow we get our neat little tracks and our slick little answers and we get all our apologetics in order and then we'll go out and we'll, we'll share the gospel. Because then we're equipped. Beloved, if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you're about as equipped as you're ever going to be to share your faith. If you can't do it now, having Christ and having the Holy Spirit within you, you're just making excuses. Well, how is this encouraging? Because the simple fact that we don't, we can't, I don't, I can't save anybody. Never have, never will. That's not what God calls us to do. Well, I thought we were supposed to go and preach the gospel to all the... Well, we are. That's what he calls us to do. Think of it this way. I mentioned this on Wednesday night in our, our care group. Think of us as waiters. When you go to a restaurant, what does the waiter do? 
He waits on you. He comes to your table, introduces himself, takes your order. He goes back to the kitchen, and what's he do? His job is merely to bring the food that the chef has cooked over to your table and put it in front of you. That's his job. If he doesn't do that, he's not doing his job. His job is not to go into the kitchen and get the food and look at it and go, "Ah, you know what, look out, I'm going to do this. And change up the plate that the chef prepared. That's not his job. His job isn't to bring the food over to the table and sit it down in front of you and grab a fork and grab a piece of meat and shove it in your mouth. That's not his job. That would be offensive. What's his job? Just deliver the food from the kitchen to the table. That's what you're called to do. We're to deliver the gospel to a lost and dying world. That's what we're called to do. We're not called to change the message. Well, you know, I know he ordered liver and onions, but I don't think he's going to like it, so I'm going to put something else on there. I'm going to change it. I know what the gospel says. You've got to deny yourself, and you've got to forsake your sin, and you've got to come to Christ willingly and repent of your sin. I know that, but people just don't understand that. They're going to reject that. So just let me tweak it a little bit. Let me get in the kitchen with you, God, and I'll come up with the gospel that anybody will believe. So then we go out with our little track and tell people, God has a wonderful plan for your life. He does? God wants you to be happy, healthy, wealthy. Jesus wants to meet all your needs. He does. Just come to Jesus and everything will be fine in your life. It will. (laughs) Tell the disciples that. Tell the people that martyrs that have gone before us that. See, we want to change the gospel message. We want to take some of those hard sayings and sugarcoat them. Jesus says here, you know what? Your humanness didn't figure this out, Peter. Your humanness didn't figure it out. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says, No man calls Jesus Lord but by the Spirit of God revealing him. See, it's God who discloses his Son to human understanding. Only God can do that. I mean, we're just another group of of blind people, like we saw last week. He wants him to understand that you didn't figure this out on your own. You're inadequate to figure this out. You're just Simon, the son of John. You could never have figured this out on your own. It's interesting, Matthew eleven two records words of the Lord, and he says this, All things are delivered unto me by my Father, and no man knows the Son but the Father, neither knows any man the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. The Father reveals the Son. That's the source of this confession. The Son reveals the Father. 
It's only by divine revelation that we can even know Christ. So when you go out and you share your faith, when you go out and you instruct people with the gospel of Christ, you don't need to change the message. You go out and you share it as boldly as you can. Because when they reject the message, what are they doing? They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. And when someone comes to Christ, when someone's eyes are open and God tears back the veils from their eyes and they see the truth and they repent and they come to Christ, we don't pat ourselves on the back. Oh, yeah, you should have seen me, man. I was whipping tracks out of every pocket, you know. Crazy. This is something that happens on a divine level. And you might say, well, how is that encouraging? I don't know about you, it helps me sleep at night. How could you sleep at night if it was up to you to go save people? How could you lay your head on your pillow at night knowing that the person you shared your faith with at the supermarket in the grocery, grocery store, maybe you didn't do it just right. Maybe you messed something up. And now that person's going to die and going to go to hell because you messed it up. How could you sleep at night? I tell you, you couldn't if you had a conscience. There's no way. I thank God for this verse. It's not by flesh and blood that this is revealed to you. It's by my Father in heaven. So when someone comes to Christ, it's because God has worked in their heart. It's because the Father reveals the Son and the Son reveals the Father. The Father revealed Jesus Christ to be the Messiah through Christ himself. All the years, all the time that's built up to this, They've had all the evidence they need. There's two things, basically, that you need to understand about knowing Christ. Two things. First of all, who He is. Who He is. That's the person of Christ. Do you know who He is? Because he's not just some religious guy. He's not just some Bible character. He's the Messiah. The Bible calls him the creator of everything we see. He's our Savior. And then secondly, not only who he is, but what he did. Not only the person of Christ, but the work of Christ. There's a lot of people that know who Jesus is. They think he's some guy down in Mexico. They know, there's a lot of people that know what Jesus did. Oh, yeah, 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 he died, died for my sins. Romans ten seventeen says, Saving faith comes by hearing a word about Christ. So when you look at creation and you look at Jesus Christ and you look at the work that he's done, God used Christ to reveal himself. And he's doing that even here this morning. Over and over, Christ said, many are going to say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. What was he saying? They're going to answer to me. What was he saying when he said that? He was saying that I am God. He said they're going to come before me, God. This is what Jesus said when he was here on earth. 
He also said in 5.17, Matthew, I have come to fulfill the law. Over and over and over and over again, he spoke as one having authority to the point where even his enemies were astounded at the words he said. And then you take the words of Christ and you match them with the works of Christ. It doesn't just affect you in your ears, but in your mind. I mean, you look at people being healed, power over disease, power over nature, power over demons, power over sin, over death. Well, what happens when you get this answer right? What happens? What's the result? It says right there in verse 17, you're blessed. You're blessed. Romans 14, 10 and 11 says this, So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I will also acknowledge or confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. See, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. This this question will be answered one day or another. Sooner or later, you're going to have to answer this question. It says in Romans 14, the other one was Matthew 10, excuse me, verses 32 to 33. It says in Romans 14 that when we stand before the judgment seat of God, he says, as I live, says the Lord. This is what he says. Listen, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. Everyone. What's the difference between now and then? Then, It's before the judgment seat of God. See, Christ has come as Savior. He died on a cruel cross. He died a horrible death. Why did he do that? Out of love. So that he could take your sin upon himself and pay the price that was needed to be paid. Because God is a just God. If somebody went into court who robbed a store and raped somebody... And they were on trial before you, and the judge said, okay, let me hear what happened. Well, you know, I just had a bad day, and, you know, I was raised in a bad home, and, yeah, I did these things, but whatever. And the judge said, oh, you know what? I feel really bad for you, and, you know, you're forgiven. Go ahead and go. What would you say? That's injustice. That's not right. He should be punished. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says this. This isn't something analytically that you have to figure out. This is very basic. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Basically, you're not perfect. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all in this together. We need a Savior. We need someone who can bail us out of this, who can get us out of this mess that we are in. And the only person that's stepping up to the plate and has stepped up to the plate is Jesus, the Son of God. And if you're one to say, well, you know, I need more evidence, well, then you better get busy. Because there's there's so much evidence all around you. Don't end up like the Pharisees, blind and on their way to hell because of their unbelief. At least investigate it. At least do due diligence and check it out. 
Ask God to help you. God, if you're there, help me believe this. Help my unbelief. That's a biblical prayer. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a biblical prayer. I pray that God would give you the ability to understand what we've talked about here this morning. And even beyond that, that he would, for us that know Christ, put a burden in our hearts to take this message. Don't mess with the message. Take the gospel, the pure gospel, out to a lost and dying world so that we could see God glorified through people who come to Christ, who are saved because we're obedient to the call of the gospel. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We pray, Lord, that as the disciples proclaim that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Father, we thank you that we don't serve a dead God, that we don't serve one of these idols that we even saw in these pictures of some empty temple somewhere. Matter of fact, you're even beyond a building. You live in our hearts. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would minister your grace, your power to the hearts that are gathered here. Lord, if there's any here who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, who have yet to cry out to you and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I pray that you would do that even now, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would make it impossible for them to withstand your call any longer, that you would save them, that they would turn to you as their Savior. Lord, we pray for us as believers that we would have the boldness it takes to leave this place and to share with a passion and with a desire to see men and women and boys and girls come to Christ. We can't save people, but we can sure give them the message that can. And that's what you've called us to do. Thank you that it's not up to us to save the human heart. Only you can do that. But thank you, Lord, for including us in the process that we're the waiters that take that precious gospel message to people who are hurting and dying all over this world. We can see their lives transformed and their eternal destiny secured in you. Help us to keep the proper perspective we need, even as a church. And Father, we ask that you administer your grace to us, even afterwards in our fellowship time. Bless the time that we'll share it together. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.